In the future, there, there might be times where we, hit, we address a topic, we, we hit on a, a point that maybe ha, has a, a real lopsided relevance, okay? So maybe we're speaking predominantly to parents, the spouses, the siblings, to just the men, to just the women. If you ever find yourself here or anywhere else where you're listening to a message that, that seems to have that lopsided relevance, where you're like, I'm not really sure how this applies to me in my life, I would encourage you not to tune out, but to lean in and look for this. As you hear someone talking about the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, look for this. What is God like? What does this passage reveal about who God is? Because even if the context is something that doesn't apply to you, as far as talking about marriage or dating or, or kids or whatever that may be, you can still understand a little more about who our God is. And so don't worry, this is not a, a Valentine's Day message, um, but if you ever find yourself in maybe a heavily lopsided message, just look for that question. There's always something we can learn about who God is. And as we come to know who God is, that then instructs us, that directs us, that guides us in how we can engage with him, how we can connect with him, how we can pursue him, and then live a life that obeys him, that honors him, and gives him glory. Well, when I was a younger man, not quite as good looking as I am today, um, I did not celebrate, I did not believe in, I did not value Valentine's Day. I probably should have. Um, but I did not. I, I haven't always been this poetic wordsmith with my master's in romance that I am today. Um, and yes, that is all a lie. Um, but truly, I, I, I didn't believe in Valentine's Day. I didn't celebrate. Um, I felt that it cheapened, that it diminished my gift. Whatever I were to do for my wife on February 14th, I felt like it took away from my love for her because it was expected. It was Valentine's Day. You're supposed to do something on Valentine's Day, whether you care or not. What was kind of how I felt about it. Now, for those who are wiser and smarter than me in the room, uh, there's no need to pull me aside afterwards and straighten me out. That's already happened. I have changed. I, I do honor and celebrate Valentine's Day by showing my wife and now my, my two little girls uh, their uh, importance in my life and the fact that they're loved. I get them a little card and, and a gift. Um, See, I really saw that loving my wife was, was my daily privilege and a commitment that I made to her. So whether it was Valentine's Day or not, I was called to love her. And so, you know, despite my past, it really didn't diminish or cheapen the gift. I also realized this, that if the world who does not know God can love so greatly on, on February 14th, well, how much more should I, as someone who does know God, love his wife, love those in his life. And so I've, I've definitely kind of flip-flopped to the other way. Man, I, I don't go overboard. You know, the house isn't painted red, lit up. You know, with, with, you know, she opens the door and like hearts start, heart balloons start floating out. Man, I don't go quite to that point. Uh, if anyone would like to do that, the idea is free. Feel free to steal it. Um, but one of the things I also started to realize is as days like Valentine's Day can begin to reveal how well you've been loving your, your spouse or your significant other. If all of a sudden February 14th is coming up and you haven't done anything the other 364 days out of the year, you, you darn as well better do something on February 14th regardless of what you believe about it. It's almost like a litmus test to see, well, how, you know, have I really been showing them my love? Well, see, Valentine's is, is not the only time that I've, I've messed up in this category of loving others. I mean, there's many ways and, and stories I could share how I've fallen short at loving those that I love. Uh, I, I've hurt my kids, I've hurt my wife, my, my parents, my siblings uh, with my words at times. And I, I love them all dearly, and yet there's times where I've hurt them 
I've disappointed some of my closest friends who I consider like family to me. I've fallen short in fully loving my brothers and sisters who I'm unified with in Christ. And so those who would also profess a faith in Christ, I've, I've let them down. I, I've uh, not fulfilled my commitment to them if I uh, said I'd be there and maybe something came up. But there's times where I've fallen short in the ways that I've demonstrated love. And how much more can I say that I've missed the mark when it comes to those that are maybe a little more difficult to love? It's one thing to say, here's someone that, you know, is my best friend, is my spouse, is my sibling, is family. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, it's easy to love them. You know, uh, what about those that maybe we don't like as much? What about those who are a lot more different than we are, think differently, act differently? There are times where I haven't shown love and patience with someone who's moving at a slower pace. And maybe it's not so much that they're moving slower, but I'm moving too quick. I'm, I'm, I'm rushing through things. And all of a sudden I meet up with someone who's going at a normal pace and I, I don't show them love and patience all the time. I, I've messed up in love um, by looking at people who are created by God and yet dismissing them at times because it would seem too difficult or too messy to show them the love that God might be calling me to show them. There's times in my life where I've desired vengeance on those who have wronged me, my family, or my friends instead of praying for mercy upon their lives. Can, can you relate to any of this? Can you find times in your life you say, yeah, I've, I've blown it when it comes to showing love to someone else. Whether it be those who are closest to you, that you see on a daily basis that you would do anything for, or, or just your fellow human beings who have been created by God, who we, we bump shoulders with as, as we do life together. Can, can you relate to some of this? Do you feel like, hey, here's some stories I could share, Steve, uh, about how I have blown it with love. Because see, love is an ambiguous word. It's so broad in our culture. See, I love my family. I absolutely love my family. I love Taco Tuesdays. For that fact, I love Taco Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Taco Days. Um, I also love a good parking spot. I, I had no problem walking across the parking lot, but if I can like, just look a little bit longer and get that best right up front parking spot, I mean, it's, it's, it's a prize. It's a game for me. So you can see, here, here's three different things that all have varying values and, and, and worth in my life, and yet we would say, I love, I love, I love. So you can see how it's kind of a confusing word. As we go to other languages, uh, some of the languages that the, God's word is, was, a written, was originally written in, most of the Old Testament would have been written in Hebrew, and there's three different words to describe love, depending on what kind of love we're talking about. Much of the, the New Testament we, would have been written in Greek, and it has five different words. For love. Love can be a noun, this concept to grasp. Love can be a verb, this action of doing, of demonstrating something. We can express love with words, and yet love is not found in the words. Think about that. They may feel good to hear certain things, but love is not in the words. We're just expressing it through those words, whether it's through simply saying, honey, I love you, or maybe through a poem or a song. Does anyone know any songs with the word love in it? I think there's a few. It can be seen in the deeds and actions that we do for others. But what's interesting is that sometimes deeds and actions of service aren't always acts of love, right? We can do something for someone else with ulterior motives, trying to get something out of it. Not because we love them, but because we love ourselves or because we're putting ourselves first. 
So all this confusion around what is love can lead us to just that question. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. For those not laughing, turn to someone who is and ask them what that all is about. Because that was funny. I got to tell myself that, otherwise, you know. So we're going to this new series called Love Does. And it's right in the middle of our Jesus, a true and better story. But we just want to pause for a minute and look at this concept of love. And the fact that love isn't just this thing, but there's an action. It moves us to a place to go do something. You can see a blank on that picture there. Love does what? And so my heart is that we can answer that question uh, over these next three weeks. Uh, we can see in the book of 1 John that God is love and how he sent Jesus because he loved. And Jesus laid down his life out of love and demonstrated love for us. 1 John 4, 7-12 teaches this. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So he said love is from God and that God himself is the embodiment of love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. John 3.16 says that as, uh, for God so loved that he gave his only son. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. You can see who's primary there. God first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The payment for the cost that our sins accrue that we can't pay. Jesus is a substitution for that. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfect in us, meaning the way that we love others reveals God to this world. So God moved on our behalf out of love for us. God who is God brings love, or God who is love brings love to us, loves us, shows his love by giving Jesus, by sending Jesus, who died on the cross, was free from sin, and so his sacrifice paid the price for all sin so that we trust in him our sin, our mistakes, ways we've gone against the word of God, is wiped clean. If you've ever heard the phrase gospel, that, that's what the gospel's talking about. It translates literally as the good news. And the good news of Jesus is that apart from Jesus, we stand separated from God. Scriptures say that, that we deserve death, both physical and spiritual, because of our sins. But the good news is that God has made a way for us that when we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin, our sin is removed. Jesus is a substitutionary atonement. He pays the price for that. Then when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus. Why did he do all this? Because he loves us. Here's something to think about. So if God, being God, is all-knowing, that means that when he made man, he knew that he was going to walk this road of offering his son out of love for us, and yet he still made us. So he made us knowing what it was going to cost, knowing that the depth he was going to go to so that we could be in relationship with him because of his love. What an amazing picture of pure love. So these next three weeks, we're going to explore God's word on this concept of love does. Like I said, hopefully we can fill in the end of that sentence a little bit. There will be crossover 
If we're going to talk about love for three weeks, yes, there will be crossover. Uh, but the three main things we're going to be looking at today, we're going to look at what it looks like to love God. Next week, we'll be looking at what it looks like to love others. And then we're going to wrap it up looking at what does it look like to love our community? What does it look like, look like to love those who are far from God, who don't know God? And so that's kind of the road that we're going on. If you've got your Bibles, you go ahead and turn them on or open them up to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4 through 9. This text we're going to look at here, um, I'll kind of give you the context of, of where it comes in. So the whole month of January into February, we learned about uh, how, how God is a, Jesus is a true and better Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Abraham was one that God gave a promise to, if you remember all this. He promised that he would make him a nation. They didn't have any kids at the time, and they were old. They said, I'm going to raise up a nation through you. I'm going to give you land for this nation. And not only am I going to bless you, but you will be a blessing upon all people. And then we kind of see that story begin to play out from Abraham to his son Isaac, Isaac to his son Jacob. God likes changing names because he, he, he renews people and, and gives them a new heart, a new purpose. And all of a sudden, Jacob is called Israel. And Israel goes and multiplies, and they have more kids, and they have more people, and they become the nation of Israel. And so the nation of Israel from that point then goes and settles around Egypt. And, and they're continuing to grow, and, and there's an exchange of pharaohs. The first pharaoh, when they went there, there was some favor with them, so that's why they kind of lived as, as good neighbors. But then there's a new pharaoh, and all of a sudden this pharaoh realizes, hey, the more they grow, the more powerful they become. And, and I don't like unchecked power in my territory so what does he do he enslaves them so for 400 years the israelite nation is enslaved in egypt and god hears their cries for freedom and he sends a messenger he sends moses to pharaoh saying let my people go and and through all these amazing acts of god uh, works it out so that not only do they let god's people go but they let them go as if they had defeated them in battle with the spoils of war if you ever wondered how did the Israelites survive in the desert beyond, uh, first and foremost, the fact that God provided for their needs, you also see that the Egyptians sent them out with their stuff. Not just the Israelite stuff, but the Egyptian stuff as well. And so they get sent out into the desert, but then they, they pursue idols. They turn from God. And there's 40 years of wandering where God says, hey, basically this whole generation that, that, that after all that I did that didn't pursue me, I'm going to wait for you to die off, but I'm going to keep my promises to your people. And after 40 years, he leads them into a promised land. And so at this point, Moses is about 120 years old. Uh, they're just about to go into the promised land. And Moses is giving kind of some parting words. He, he, he kind of senses the end is near. And so there's a lot of significance in what he, sends here, what he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Really what he's going to say uh, is this call to obey the commands of God. And the heart of this text is really the whole heart of the book of Deuteronomy. If you're not sure where it is, you have uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's, it's the fifth book in the Bible. If you start from the beginning in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, like a parent who senses that their end is, ne is near, Moses is going to leave these parting words for his people, the Israelites. It really encapsulates all that Moses wants for his people. And, and this verse we're going to look at is called the Shema. 
It's called the Shema. Now, sometimes people say the Shema, they're just referring to the, the first line there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema literally translates as hear. He's really creative. They just took the first word and, okay, that's what it's called. Uh, so Shema is what this is called. But the Shema is actually the, this verse in its entirety plus two other parts have kind of built on it. But it, it can be used for either one of those, whether uh, part of this verse or this and, and two others. But really, what the Shema is... Um, it was developed uh, to be a summary of the entire Jewish law. It's a prayer that the Jews would pray. It's actually the centerpiece of their daily prayer time. Every morning, every night, there's a ritual that they would go through uh, while they pray the, uh, the Shema and some other verses as well. Um, it, it was written on these tiny scrolls. Have you ever heard the word tefillin? Uh, let's pull the next picture up here. This is a picture of tefillin. We're going to see actually in this verse where it talks about uh, having God's word on, on your head and tie him on, on your head. Nope, next one, or other one, uh, and on your arm. So that's a tefillin. There's a little box on the arm, there's a box on the head. In that box are little scrolls with different passages written on them. And one of them is the Shema that we're about to read. And the, the heart behind this is putting God's uh, heart uh, um, on your mind and, and close to your heart. As you see Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, you're going to see where the Jews kind of developed this practice of wrapping these boxes uh, onto their body as part of their prayer ritual. They don't wear them around all day. They, they put this on, they, they spend some time praying, and then they take it off. Uh, they also have uh, the mezuzah, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, so I apologize. Uh, but the mezuzah is actually this little box that goes on the doorpost of their homes. That's the next picture here, and uh, you can see that on the frame. And again, it's a little scroll that they would write the Shema and they'd put it on their doorpost. Again, it's living out this verse, but this is a central part of their life. That's really what I'm building up to, what I want you to see. This is often the first verse that they would teach to their children. It's very possible that Jesus, even though he was God, when he came, he came and lived as a man. And so he grew as an infant, as a child. It's very possible uh, that his parents taught him this as one of the first verses of the scriptures before he could even read so let's read it. Follow along with me. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You can see in those closing verses, that's where they, they get that practice of putting the box on their forehead and on their arms. It's uh, trying to live out that call. It, it, Jesus also supports the centrality, the, the significance, the importance of this uh, verse when he's asked about what is the greatest commandment. This is what he replies with. Basically saying, love God. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, then he throws the next one about loving others. We'll get to that next week. This is a significant verse. So if love does, then what does it do when it comes to loving God? So if our topic here for this series is love does, this action of loving, what does love do when it comes to this topic of loving God? First thing is this. Love stands on truth. Love stands on truth. It believes all there is to know about God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, the cultural climate at the time was one of an overarching, overwhelming, polytheistic mindset. Uh, there was a God for whatever ails you. 
I mean, if you had a bum elbow, you could probably go find the god of elbows and make some sacrifice to him and to heal your elbow. And it was a very polytheistic culture that they lived in. Um, but the Lord God is both unique and, and, and unified in being one. You say, well, how, how can God be one if he's Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, this is really where this Hebrew word for one, ekad, really is just a, a beautiful word. I wish we had one like it in the English, English language, but implies a unity in parts. So you see in Exodus 26, verse 6, it's talking about uh, the tabernacle. Tabernacle, basically, uh, our tabernacle is the tent we set, out, we set up in the summer. It's, it's kind of a temporary housing. And there's this tent they would set up uh, for where uh, all, all the different articles of God would reside. And there's a sign for the people of God. This is God residing in our camp. He's in the tabernacle. And there's instructions in Exodus, uh, there was 25 there, I said, 26 verse 6 about how the parts of the tabernacle should be set up and it talks about uses this word akad says that they all should be one and so it's talking about all these different parts that make it up and yet it's one it's the tabernacle it's the house of god the seat of god in ezekiel 37 19 in reference to the fragmented part of israel being reunited as one again multiple parts coming together as one again it uses this word akad so we can see the father son and the holy spirit a triune God, and yet one God. And so this declaration of, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a theological statement. This is a glorification of who God is. This is saying, God, you are the one true God. You are our God. And there are no other gods. All other gods would be false gods. See, as the story of the Israelites play out, they kind of get in this cycle where they begin to chase after other gods. It kind of goes like this. There's prosperity as they pursue God, as they're walking in his ways. There's this time of good fortune and blessing. It's not always easy. Sometimes there's times of battle, but God continues to go before them in battle as they're walking with him. But then it moves to a place of, of apathy and even indifference as maybe they get too far away from, some, from witnessing with their own eyes some of the things that God has done. Maybe the generation before doesn't pass down the truth of what God has done. They don't tell the stories. Hey, let me tell you what God did when I was a kid. Let me tell you how he freed us from Egypt. I remember that day. Let me tell you how, how we crossed the Red Sea. Let me tell you how he, he provided food for us in the desert, and how he led us with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. Let me tell you how he led us into the promised land. Those stories began to wane as apathy and indifference grew. And God's people would turn to false gods. It would bring about their demise. Because they, they'd be separated from God because they were, they were running the other way. But then there would be an awakening, a, a repentance, and a return to God. And again, you would see blessings abound until again, apathy and indifference would take root as they pursued false gods. And you could ask this question, do we have false gods today? Well, first of all, yeah, there are false gods and false religions that people pour their lives into wholeheartedly today, unfortunately. And here, here's the quickest, best way to address if, if something is, is a true religion or not. Is what do they say about Jesus? Who do they say Jesus is? And so if you have other denominations even that, that, that claim to, be, to follow God. So, okay, who do you say about Jesus? Oh, he was just a nice guy. That's a false religion. Jesus makes claims about who he is, and then he backs it up. He claimed to be God, and then he backed it up by his actions. And I know that can be offensive to say, okay, well, does that mean that, that all other religion is, is false religion? 
By looking from this perspective, we were separated from God because of our actions, and God, in his love, made a way for us. How amazing is that? He made a way for us in Jesus, is what scriptures teach. And so what what does a religion say about Jesus? Who do they say he is? Do they say he's God, that he is the Messiah? If not, then it's false. It's a false God. So what is our response if we have people in our lives who are living a life that's pursuing a false God? Church, hear me in this. Do not condemn or mock those who are tied up in in other religions. Pray for them. Share the hope and the joy that you have in God, that you have in Jesus. Reach out to them with the love of God, the same love that God reaches out to us with. It says, hey, you are my children. I love you. I will send my son to die for you. Let us reach out to those who are in false religions. I think there's other ways that this concept of false religion and false gods can work its way into our lives. See, church, we pursue a false god when we attribute false characteristics to the true God. So before we're talking about a false god, now I'm talking about we take a false characteristic and try to put it on the one true God. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Here's an example. There are those who would say that, that God is love and they would, they would separate that from truth. They would say, we don't need to worry about truth. They say things like, God loves you, and you can keep doing whatever you want to do. You don't have to change your life at all. We don't have to go to a place of obedience. We don't have to acknowledge what God calls us to do with our lives. Just know God loves you and go do whatever the heck you want. But we go into Scripture and we say, no, God not only loves us, but he loves us too much to leave us in that place of sinfulness. And so he takes our dead heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. He gives us life and life to the full. He leads us uh, to that which would be refreshing and bring hope and joy and satisfaction in our lives. That which would last. And so we need to stand on, on love and on truth. Sometimes we attribute uh, grace to God, but we don't put um, this, this piece of um, mercy and, and, and vengeance and how all that plays out. So we, we, we seek revenge in spite of grace. Sometimes when we're wronged, when someone's gone against us, we want the God of the Old Testament to come to our side and and for his vengeance to play out upon those who have wronged us. But when we're on the other side, when we're the ones who have wronged someone, we want the God that we see in the New Testament, his mercy and his grace to pour over us. Say, oh no, forgive me. But we've got to acknowledge that the God of the Old and the God of the New are the same God that all reveals part of who he is. Romans 12, 19 would speak to this one, which says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so if we're trying to say that our God is a God who's trying to smite everyone, that's putting false attributes onto the true God. It says, Instead, overcome evil with good, as Romans 12 continues. So how should we live? What is a true God? Is a God that says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I'll take care of that. You live a life of good. So let's love God by getting to know Him and His character. In the same way that we pursue those that we're interested in or those that we love. Remember those early days of a relationship where you're sending messages, depending on when your early days were. Maybe you're sending a mail, snail mail. Maybe you're sending text messages or email. Maybe you've got a carrier pigeon. I don't know. <laughs> you send flowers. You're doing all you can do to pursue someone. Um, 
You can call it stalking. I've shared this before. I, I don't think it is because it's just not. But I put myself places I thought my wife might be before she was my wife. Yeah, I didn't know she was going to be there. I didn't have her schedule, and I wasn't like, you know, sabotaging where she goes so that we could meet up. Um, I thought about it, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just went places she might be because I want to get to know her. I want to engage with her and have conversation. In the same way that we pursue those, we want to come to a place of knowing more and, and loving. God has pursued us already. He's already spoken a true word. He's already revealed his word to us in Scripture. So let us respond in like by pursuing him. That kind of brings us to our next point. So first, love stands on truth. The second love does is that love pushes all in. Love pushes all in. You can say this way, that we give our all to God. Deuteronomy 5, 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Some of you might see that and be like, well, how can a love to command, how, how, can a, a, how loving is a command to love? So God's saying, hey, love me. Oh. And what if you, there was someone who came up to you and said, hey, love me. Uh, dude, get out of my face. <laughs> it, we, we wouldn't respond well to that. So why is it different with God? Because it is. Because when it's from God, it's very loving. Because he is love. Love originates and comes from him. And the fact that he even loves us enough to say, hey, love me, is a beautiful thing. It's an invitation to a relationship with the God of the universe, the one true God. And so coming from anyone else, yes, this would be creepy, this command to love, but coming from God, it's an opportunity. It's a beautiful thing. Apart from God, we would perish. And so what should our response be? Deuteronomy 6.5 calls us to push all in. Pushing all in, it's a poker phrase. If you ever seen any poker games or been a part of them, when you say, I'm all in, you take everything you have and you put it to the center of the table. As soon as it's in the center of the table, you can't take it back. There's no plan B. There's no backup plan. It's not like, hey, I got another five bucks in my pocket. You push all in. If you win, you win big. If you lose, you're done. Because you've put everything in. That's what God calls us to do. Love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with all your might. Let's look at those three a little bit. What's significant about them? Well, here we see heart, soul, and might. Three things. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy, which again has the same theme throughout it, we only see two of them sometimes. It doesn't always hit on the full trifecta. If we jump ahead to the New Testament where Jesus is quoting it, it has four. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And sometimes it's strength, sometimes sometimes it's might. How, How do we understand this? Well, I've heard different sermons on this that will go through the Hebrew understanding because this would have been written originally in Hebrew. And you can say, okay, well, in Hebrew, the heart is kind of the, the, the one's being, our source of thoughts, words, and actions. It's kind of our core of our identity. It's who we are. And then they would say that the soul is one's life and spirit, kind of the seat of one's willpower. And the might and strength is an interesting one. The first two are nouns. This one's actually an adverb. Uh, Everywhere else that this term is used, just about, except for one, one other time, it, it has this heart of very. 137 times it, it says very. Literally, it's saying our veriness. Well, what does that mean? It's, it's the, the ways in which we use all that God has given us. It, it, it's our ability to, uh, you know, you're very good at this, or you have the ability to be very good at that. Basically, it's everything. It, it's all of our ability and our energy. It's all the resources that are available to us. So the Hebrew understanding of this word, uh, might, 
is saying, love God with all your power, all your wealth, all your cars, all your spouses. So they played me back then, so yeah. Uh, all, all your houses, all of your influence, all of your social media influence, uh, all of your clothing, all of your children, all of your hobbies, all of your skills, all of your talents, all of your tra- all of your attitudes, all of the opportunity that you have before you. Did I miss anything? Everything is what we're to love God with. The Greek understanding is a little different. They would see the heart as the seat of emotion. They would see the mind as the seat of thought, and the soul is a sense of being where life comes from. The Greeks tend to focus on the parts of the individual, which is why they needed more words to describe what Moses was talking about here in Deuteronomy 6. Because they want to cover all the bases. They were trying to break it up. How do we identify this? And, and so when they translate it, you get a few extra words in there. But the Hebrews are looking at the whole. It would have been their tradition to see how all the parts come together as one. And that's why you see the variations between two words or three words. is because they're not trying to make sure they hit on every little aspect. They want you to see they're talking about everything. The point is we're to love God with the fullness of ourselves. Just that point right there, that's a sermon in itself. We're to love God with the fullness of ourselves. Let's leave this place today thinking on that truth. Let us love God with the fullness, with the allness, we could say, of ourselves. What about this part of me? Yep. What about this stuff over here? Yep. I got a storage locker full of stuff. That too, yeah. I have a figurative storage locker full of some stuff. Yep, that too. With our allness. What does that look like? Well, it moves us to a place of obedience. Place of obedience. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Supposedly, I couldn't verify this, uh, but supposedly there's a sign in some park in Brussels, Germany, that is trying to fight for flowers. It's trying to care for the flowers. And this sign is in three different languages. Uh, in German, it supposedly says, picking flowers is prohibited. So there's a command without much love. I mean, signs can't show you much love. Maybe there's a little heart on there on the eye, but that's all right. Um, it's just a command. Don't do it. Don't pick the flowers. In English, it's written, please, don't pick the flowers. So we, don't, we lose some of the command, right? It, it's a request. Hey, if it suits you, leave the flowers alone, please. So we, we add a little more love into the scene, but we're missing the command. The third language that's on the sign supposedly is French. It says, those who love flowers will not pick them. Those who love flowers will not pick them. What that statement is doing is saying, hey, if you love this, respond accordingly. There's that truth and love both together in that statement. And so for those who love God, we'll obey Him. It moves us to a place of obedience. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what are we unwilling to surrender? What part of our allness do we not want to let go of? What's off limits with regards to sacrifice? When Sarah and I were married for about five, six years, we had a baby on the way, and then our baby was born, and so it was right around that mark where Evelyn was about one year old, not even yet. I had a Jeep, a 1980 CJ7, and I bought it. It was stock. The carburetor had lit on fire, and so I had to do a little bit of work to it to get it up and running, 
And uh, I, I kind of just opened up a can of worms. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm working out a deal on, on a commercial stall because I got this thing completely torn apart, down to the frame, and you know, oh, let's go a little bigger on tires. I got 28-inch tires. I could go to like 30-inch tires. Oh, I found a great deal on 35-inch tires. Okay, so let's put those on. And, you know, then you got to lift it because the tires don't fit in the wheel wells. And next thing you know, I, I'd finished this Jeep. I'd poured all kinds of time and money into it. And um, I loved it. It was a blast. I still remember talking with Sarah, my wife, and um, we had our, our little Evelyn, and I'd put her in the seat like she was driving it and uh, just got swallowed by this, this beast of a little Jeep that was sitting there. And Sarah never asked me to give it the Jeep up. She never said, you're spending too much time on it or too much money is wrapped up in it. Never. But out of a love for my family, out of a love for my wife and, and, and for my growing family, I thought to myself, you know what? There's probably better things we could do with these funds. And so I sold it. I put it up, I sold it, and I released that. Again, I'm not saying that we all have to go sell our, our, our fun little vehicles that we have. So this is what God did in my heart. He said, Steve, are you willing to give that up for me? Are you willing to give that up for your family? And out of a heart of love and response, I said, yep, I'll let go of that. Now, in the moment, it may not have been, whoop, let go. It might have been a little bit of prying, you know, between God and me and all that. But I joyfully let that go and said, out of love, I, yes, I sacrifice that. So whether it's something tangible, whether it's something intangible, maybe it's where you're living or where God's calling you to live. Maybe it's your situation at work. Maybe you got passed over for promotion, but you feel like God's still calling you to stay where you're at and continue to invest in that. I don't know what it is, but what is that thing that you don't want to let go of? No, God, this is the way it's got to be. It's got to be this way. He's saying, if you love me, I want you to open up your hand and surrender that to me and see what I'll do. The hard part is sometimes we don't trust the character of God, right? If we don't know the character of God, don't trust the character of God, we have a hard time surrendering. And so we've got to walk on all this together. We've got to grow in our understanding of who he is. We need to believe all about God. We need to give all. And then we need to live a life. Uh, we need to live all for God. Because love is life. If you look at love does. What does love do? Love lives. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We see this progression. Remind yourself, verse 6, it should be on your heart. It's a part of your daily life. The word of God, a loving God should be on your heart. A reminder to teach it to your family. Teach it to your children. And then we should talk about it from, from when we wake up to when we lie down. Whether at home or at work, wherever we go, we should have things that remind us of the Word of God. It should be a part of our life. We should live all for God. So I want to close up with this. See, love does because love already did. Love does because love already did. Think about that. We can go and show love to others because God has already shown us love. Remember that, church. You have been shown great love. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. If we keep reading that text, we kind of get a little prequel of where we're going next week. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So church, let us respond to God's love by giving our all and living for God in the allness of who we are. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. We thank you for what you're doing in and amongst us. Help us to offer all of ourselves, to surrender everything, Father. Because as we've just learned in this past series, we're going to be picking up again that uh, when we involve you in our life, there's a true and better story that is played out. Teach us to love you uh, through obedience, through surrender, through giving our all, through living our all tied up in you, Father. And not in some kind of superficial, I always have to be saying the name of Jesus and God in every single sentence and conversation sort of way, but in a genuine longing and pursuit of you, Father. Give us that same uh, urgency and desire when we pursued someone in our life that we are interested in, Father. Let us pursue you with that passion, with that goal. And I thank you in advance, Father, that you are found You don't hide yourself from us, but you reveal yourself to us through your Son, Jesus, through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, through your church, through your people, through your Word, Father God, through nature. Through so many ways, you reveal yourself to us. Help us to know who you are. Help us to give all and live all for you, because you are worthy. Pray us all in your name. Amen.